Well, this morning I'll be concluding a sermon series that Pastor Greg began some time ago titled Abundant Life in Christ. Jesus, of course, said that he came to bring life and life in abundance. And we've been looking at the abundant life in Christ in terms of Romans 5 and Romans 6. These are not easy chapters to understand or to preach, and we're grateful that at the conclusion of this series, there are still people coming to church because this is demanding material for us to process. So we're looking this morning at the conclusion of Romans 6 where we find the words, the wages of sin is death. And that, of course, is a principle that's taught already in the Old Testament in many passages, one of which is Ezekiel 18, where the prophet says, the soul whose sins shall die. So before we get to Romans 6, I'm going to invite Matt Keep forward, and he's going to read the first 13 verses of Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look on the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. This man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. Suppose he has a violent son who sheds blood or does any of these other things, though the father has not done any of them. He eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends an interest and takes a profit. Will such a man live? He will not. Because he has done all these detestable things, he is to be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. I now invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, or read the text as it's projected on the screens, to Romans chapter 6. We will read, as I said a moment ago, the concluding verses to Romans chapter 6. Beginning at verse 19 and reading 
to the end of the chapter, verse 23, Romans 6. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. There was a moment earlier this year when I feared for my life, and I don't remember whether I've told the story in a sermon yet, but some of you know I spent time in Brazil in the month of March of this year, and I was in the city of Maciau, where a friend of mine, Brum de Graaf, lives, and I'd wanted to explore downtown Maciau, which is a very, very big city. And so my friend who lives about 25 kilometers from the downtown brought me there in the morning, and he was going to pick me up again in the evening. And I started walking around the downtown, and I saw that the sky had become overcast, and I was afraid it was going to rain. And so I decided I was going to walk back to Brum's house. Now, some 25 kilometers. It would take me a few hours to do that, but I had time. I wanted to get in my steps, and I thought, well, I can enjoy, you know, the Brazilian landscape and some of the unique Brazilian architecture, architecture. and so I was quite excited, in fact, about this journey. So I looked at Google Maps, and I found what promised to be a kind of scenic route. It went on the outskirts of the downtown along a hill, and I just imagined that there would be a lot to see and a lot to enjoy, and so I, took a, I grabbed a, a bottle of water, and I began my walk, and I was taking pictures, selfies, you know, all the things that tourists do. And it wasn't long before I found myself on a road that was becoming increasingly abandoned. Fewer cars, fewer people, fewer houses. And I thought to myself, this is rather odd. And then I noticed I was walking alongside of what is called a favela. Now, a favela is a slum or a shanty town. It's populated by squatters, people who do not pay taxes. Uh, a favela is a place that doesn't have running water or sewers. There is electricity, but it's hijacked from the city. And I was told that favelas are inhospitable, especially to one category of people, namely tourists. And I thought to myself, well, if my footwear doesn't expose me, my Portuguese will certainly expose me. I was told that if I wandered into a favela, I would not wander out. 
but that my body would be left on the roof of a building for the authorities to retrieve. Now, that seemed like it might be exaggeration to me, but it was enough to make me fearful. And so I began to walk fast. And when a car drove by or a person approached, I slowed down my speed to a saunter, and I tried to look normal. Wave at people, bom dia, you know. Tried to look normal. Not very convincing to you, is it? Probably wasn't convincing to those people either. I made it through alongside of the favela, got back into the city proper, But the lesson I learned is the lesson that the Apostle Paul is teaching in this passage, and it is this, that a road can be promising, but in the end, very dangerous. A promising road can, in the end, be very dangerous for you, and the Apostle is teaching us in these verses that there are only two roads. Now, he talks about these two roads as two different lifestyles. And in the time that we have together, we want to look at these two lifestyles and then also the two implications of these lifestyles and the two consequences of these lifestyles. They are two roads that the apostle presents as two lifestyles with two implications and two consequences. Well, what are the two lifestyles? Well, he talks about these lifestyles using the category of slavery. He talks about slavery to sin and slavery to righteousness. Now, as we pointed out last time, the concept of slavery is foreign to us, but it was, of course, common to the Apostle Paul. Scholars conjecture that most of the people in the church at Rome were slaves. If you look at the long list of names that Paul provides at the very end of the epistle, you will discover many slave names, a concept foreign to us but very familiar to the people then. Well, what is the first lifestyle? The first lifestyle the Apostle Paul calls slavery to sin. Slavery to sin. And uh, he he says, uh, doesn't he, um, in verse 19, he talks about this lifestyle. He said, it is slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. Ever-increasing wickedness, literally in the Greek, from lawlessness to lawlessness, from one degree of lawlessness to another, moral anarchy. Just a wild and uncontrolled life. Now, this uh, lifestyle promises freedom, but provides only license. License to do as you wish. License to do as you please. Paul says, verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. You had a license to do whatever you want, and this lifestyle can be quite exciting. Let's not fool ourselves. It can be full of color excitement, even pleasure. The Bible doesn't deny this. It talks very explicitly in places, doesn't it, about the pleasures of sin. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount as the broad road. It is a road in which there is ample room. 
It is a road which is very spacious. No one on this road cramps your style. You are free to go where you wish. There are no lanes for this road. There are no lines. There are no stop signs, no red lights. There are no traffic rules. There are no speed limits. You can go wherever you wish, as fast as you want, wherever you choose. If you like it, do it. If you enjoy it, go for it. It's my social life, my sex life, my religious life. I am free to do as I wish. Now, what might hold you back from living that kind of life, which is a life of license? Well, the church might. And that's why the church in our day is regarded as a repressive institution. Christians are regarded as moral police, always wagging their fingers at people. And we have to admit this morning, don't we, that the church has at times been repressive. The church at times has put down rules that you don't find in the Bible that were enslaving to people. I think we ought freely to admit that the church is not immune from error. But let me ask you this question. What is a better picture of freedom? A pride parade or a church service? A pride parade looks to be more free than a church service, doesn't it? What is a better picture of freedom? A Uh, an anniversary, a 50th anniversary party with coffee and cake or a divorce party with music and dancing and beer and wine. This lifestyle has tremendous appeal, but it's built on a faulty premise. And the faulty premise is that it assumes that what you want is good. It assumes that what you want is healthy. But what if what you want is bad? What if what you want hurts yourself? What if what you want hurts other people? What if what you want is, in fact, evil? What happens when you have roads without lanes or lines? What happens when you have roads without stop signs or red lights? What happens where you have roads without speed limits or traffic rules? You have license to go where you wish. You have freedom. You have liberty in some way to just do whatever you want. But if you're driving in a community where there are no traffic rules, no speed limits, no stop signs, no red lights, no lanes or lines, people are going to get killed. If you're a Christian this morning, you've exchanged one lifestyle for another. Paul says you've exchanged slavery to sin for slavery to righteousness, or what he elsewhere calls slavery to God, verse 22. This lifestyle provides not license, but liberty, true freedom. Now, we made the point last time, didn't we, that in order to experience true freedom, you need limits. A fish experiences true freedom in water. A bird experiences true freedom in the open air. 
A fish does not experience true freedom in the open air. A bird does not experience true freedom deep in the water. You experience true freedom in the environments for which you were made. Fish were made for water. Birds were made for the air. What is the environment for which we were created? We were created to love God and to love our neighbor. We were made for the will of God. It's what Paul calls slavery to God, slavery to righteousness, but that's where we are free. Make me captive to your will, O God, and I shall be free. Now, this is the narrow road that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a road that has all kinds of lanes and lines and stoplights and stop signs. It's a road where you have traffic rules and you have speed limits. For this road, we have a GPS. It's the Scriptures. And we follow it very carefully so that we do not uh, enter danger. In this lifestyle, we wear the yoke of Christ. We are not free to do what we want. We are not free to hurt ourselves. We are not free to injure others. We are not free to do evil. So there are two lifestyles, and these two lifestyles have two implications. What is the implication of the first lifestyle? Paul says, verse 21, what benefit do you, did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Now, the Greek word beneath the, the uh, word translated as benefit is the word fruit. And so Paul imagines this old lifestyle as a plant that yields a fruit. What is the fruit that's yielded by this old lifestyle? What is the fruit that is yielded by slavery to sin? Well, it's the things of which you are now ashamed. The shame and guilt that you feel about doing things in the past that you now regret is the fruit this lifestyle yields. I wonder this morning if you're in high school or in college or university, can I give you a piece of advice? Can you receive some advice from old Pastor Bill? You ought to live in such a way that when you look back on these years, you remember them fondly. Because I can tell you that there are a lot of people today, a lot of adults, who look back on their years in high school, their years in college and university, with a lot of shame and a lot of regret about the way that they treated teachers, about the way that they treated their friends, boys and girls in school, about the things that they did at parties the fruit that their lives generated or yielded when they were young is little more than shame, embarrassment, regret. This is the paradox of the gospel. What promises to be liberty turns out simply to be license, just to do what you want. What promises to be spacious turns out, in fact, to be suffocating. If you reject the gospel this morning, all you have is yourself. And if all you have is yourself, you will be fighting every single day of your life for yourself. 
you will need your health. You will need a good-paying job. You will need money. You will need friends. You will need a reputation. You can't afford to lose anything. And if all you have is yourself, you will be enslaved. And that's suffocating. What's the implication of the second lifestyle? Paul says, verse 22, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. Your new lifestyle, slavery to God, slavery to righteousness, yields holiness. Your new lifestyle makes you fit for the presence of God. God has freed you. He's freed you from yourself, freed you from your obsession with your health or your job or your money or your friends or whatever it is that you cling to. You've been freed from a random, directionless road. I said a moment ago, what looks spacious is often suffocating, but the reverse is also true. What looks suffocating can in the end be spacious. It looks like the gospel is going to cramp your style, but it's actually liberating. You used to be preoccupied with these things, money, health, appearance, whatever, but now you realize that these things are ultimately with the Lord, and you've been liberated. Now, doesn't this explain the Apostle Paul? Because the Apostle Paul, in many ways, lived a sorry life. There were many seasons when he was beaten, sometimes within an inch of his life. There were many seasons when he was imprisoned, many seasons when he had nothing to his name. Some of the letters that we have in the New Testament are written from prison, one of them being the letter to the Philippians. What does the Apostle Paul say in his letter to the Philippians? He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, and we're inclined to say, easy for you to say, the Apostle Paul, you don't know what I'm dealing with in life. But the Apostle Paul was in a Roman prison, which wasn't quite exactly a Canadian prison. He had nothing to his name. The only food he would eat is food that others, his friends, brought to him. He didn't have a pillow on which to put his head. He was completely destitute. And yet he summons us to rejoice in the Lord and to rejoice always because he felt like the life he was living was spacious and free because he had Jesus. And he says to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't know how many of you have read C.S. Lewis's book uh, or series, The Chronicles of Narnia, but there's a scene where the children walk into a shabby little house and Lucy exclaims, it's bigger on the inside than on the outside. I think that's a description of the gospel. It's bigger on the inside than the outside. What looks to be suffocating is, in fact, spacious. So two lifestyles, two implications, and thirdly, two consequences. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, 
but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The two roads lead to two destinations. The two lifestyles lead to two destinies. Choose a lifestyle and reap a destiny. There's correspondence, in other words, between how we live and what we will enjoy in the future. There's a correspondence between the lifestyle we have now and the destiny we'll have later. Sin pays wages. You get what you deserve. Now, it was just this past week that I discovered that it, it wasn't uncommon for the Romans to pay their slaves an allowance. If you were a good slave, you would receive an allowance. There's a correspondence between the reward and how you lived. Here the Apostle Paul says that the wages of sin is death. The wage of death isn't arbitrary. It's not like prison time for tax fraud. There's a correspondence between how you live and the wage you receive. This is C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before and taking your life as a whole with all innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Perhaps you know the saying, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a destiny. There's a correspondence between our lifestyle and our destiny. Sin gives you what you deserve. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you entrust yourself to Jesus and when you follow Jesus, you don't earn anything because you can't earn anything. You receive a gift, and the gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The basis for the gift is the atoning death of Jesus. Because Jesus loves you and me so much, he was willing to leave the safe immunity of heaven to come to earth to be a slave, ultimately to die a horrific death on the cross in order to free you from the slavery of sin to be truly liberated and to give you life. And the only way to access this gift is to go through the right gate, and that right gate is Jesus himself. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the gate. And he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. You have to trust Jesus. You have to follow him. Now, sometimes people present eternal life as if it were the carrot at the end of a stick. Now, you be a good boy, Johnny, and you'll get eternal life. Is that the idea? We are not donkeys. And that's not the way we should understand this. There is, again, a correspondence between how we live and the gift we receive. It's not like getting a medal for saving a drowning 
child, which is an arbitrary gift. There's a correspondence between how we live and what we receive. This is the point that Paul makes in Romans 2. He says that there will be a final judgment according to how we live. That's tricky to explain, but we get a glimpse of what the Apostle Paul means and what Jesus teaches in the Lord's Prayer. He teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I wonder how many people here can forgive others the way that God forgives you. I can't. I suspect that you can't. But there still ought to be some correspondence. And I think the way to understand this is to think of God's forgiveness as Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and our forgiveness as whistling or humming the tune. Do-do-do-do, do-do-do-do. That was horrible, wasn't it? That was off-tune, and that's my point. Not that I tried to sing off-tune. I really tried to sing it on-tune. There's hardly a comparison between Beethoven's symphony and us trying to whistle or hum the tune, but there is some correspondence. By listening to me hum, some of you would say, oh, that's... Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is a document that was produced at the time of the Protestant Reformation, says that we begin in this life a small obedience, or small beginning of this new obedience. When you entrust yourself to Jesus, Jesus, by means of his Spirit, begins to work in you, and you begin to live differently. It may manifest itself only in small ways, but you begin to talk a little differently. You begin to act a little differently. You begin to love a little differently. You begin to look and act a little bit more like Jesus. And if you're relying on Jesus for his grace, if you're relying on Jesus for his spirit, should it be that surprising that we begin to act and talk a little bit like him? It's not about earning. It's fully a gift. But there's still some correspondence. Paul is saying, choose a lifestyle and get a destiny. There are two lifestyles. One looks like freedom, but it's actually enslaving and results in death. The other looks like slavery, but it's actually liberating and you receive life. The two lifestyles are like the two roads that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. There's the broad road that leads to destruction, and there's the narrow road that leads to life. And sometimes there are roads that look very promising and turn out to be very dangerous. That was my experience in Brazil. Seeing a road which on Google Maps looked like it might bring me through wonderful Brazilian landscape and turned out to bring my life in peril. You need to be on the right road. How do you get on the right road? Well, it's all about passing through the right gate. And the right gate is Jesus 
Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me shall be saved. Let's pray together. Our dear Lord, we thank you for giving us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and from li for liberating us from a lifestyle that looked like freedom, but was actually bondage. Enable us as we begin to trust you, as we begin to follow you, to experience the spaciousness of the life you have secured for us. Enable us to begin to reflect you, to begin to look like you, to begin to play the music we will play flawlessly in the new creation. Transform our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our lives through your spirit and enable us always to see the liberation that the gospel affords us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.